I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Hello and welcome to another Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm Gareth Hanna, and with me are our regular reporting duo, Jonathan Bradley. Hello. And Adam Kendrick. How are we doing, gents? All good, thanks to one John Cooney. It's all about him once again. How, how many late winners is that he's, uh, he's got for Ulster or late? He's provided the winning margin in the three European games so far, if you want to take it that way. Give him so, the freedom of Belfast. So we'll start with him. How do you sum up this contribution that he's had, Johnny, in, in terms of these late interventions and everything else he's given to Ulster in the last sort of whatever it is? Well, I wrote about it at the weekend that it's really... If you're looking back for something similar, it's really like when Ruan Pienaar first arrived in Belfast and he had that run of just mm-hmm. kicking late game winners. I think for Ulster to be, you know, plus seven in points difference, but have twelve points in Europe is obviously shows you how <laughs> fine the margins have been. And while obviously it's been a team effort to get them into those positions, he's been the man that's provided that uh, essentially that plus seven with his try against Claremont. I think that was 60, 65 minutes maybe. Kick against Bath, it was 71 minutes. And then the kick at the weekend, which was 78-45, I think, when I went over. I know it was in front of the posts, but you shouldn't discount one the distance in that because right on the 10-metre line, so it was a lengthy enough penalty. Like, but Did you tell Dan McFarland that, though? No, no. Uh, he, Dan McFarland was <laughs> always confident from that distance. And more, like, to be fair, when you look at it, like it made the terrace... So it, like it would have been, yeah. it would have been yeah. good from halfway. Mm. But you know, we uh, probably wrote about him last week when he was there in media and uh, talked to a few, a few other people. Dan included Jordy Murphy about him and just saying that you know he's always had this in him. He's just needed, mm-hmm. really needed that opportunity to show it. Obviously, off the back of the disappointment of missing out in the World Cup, and I think when you go and train hard all summer and you have this sort of thing built up in your head as a goal to make the World Cup and then you don't even get to play in a game, I think it would be natural to think that you probably didn't ever have a chance to make it mm-hmm. because, you know, you didn't get that opportunity on the pitch that everybody, nearly everybody else got. To respond so positively to that in the way that he has, you know, he's the form, the form number nine in Ireland at the minute and we're, whatever it is, six weeks away, seven weeks from the Six Nations. Now, he's been the form number nine in Ireland at various points and not got the, maybe not the caps, but certainly the minutes on the pitch mm-hmm. that it deserves, but... It's so important for a team to have that sort of talisman and you can throw Marcel and you can throw Ian Henderson into the mix as well. Obviously they're not going to kick winning penalties. But to have him and you know, it, just the confidence that everybody had in that moment that they could win a penalty that far and he was still going to knock it over because you talked to the players and they were pretty much just like, you know, you can't be, you can't be 100% confident in anybody but I don't think anybody was doubting the fact that he was going to win that game there mm-hmm. you haven't given Hendo and Marcel a chance to kick a winning penalty from <laughs> well that's true brush everyone with, with <laughs> brush. Rory was never given the chance and then uh, you know, slaughtered one from the top sign for the Barbarians yeah. no, th- I think it's a good point you make that he's the form 9 in Ireland because I think Ken Tracy says he's the form today's Indo said he's the form player and from any position in Ireland that could, that could very well be the case. I, I think I put Roman Kelleher above him in terms of form players, but certain it's unquestionable he's the form nine. And I think if Ireland learned one thing from the World Cup, it's that you've got to pick on form, and that's that's something that I'm going to assume Andy Farrell's going to try and take into the Six Nations. 
and therefore it bodes really well for Cooney that he's playing like this right now. He can be helped by by Joe moving on ultimately, really. Yeah, I think he really could. Sometimes, you know, to coin a phrase that Darren Cave has made quite famous, the face doesn't fit. That can be the case. Sometimes a coach just doesn't like what you bring and there's nothing you can do about that, unfortunately. So it's a chance for him to establish himself under Andy Farrell, come into camp, do things that impress him and hopefully get a shot. I think he's probably also going to be helped by Johnny Sexton going down with this injury. There's maybe the possibility that Farrell starts to think, well, you know, my fly half's down. Maybe it's time to try and form a new partnership at halfback. So that's something that could be factoring in as well. I think one thing that I would say is you, you can't let the final penalty sort of overlook the fact that Cooney has had a few opportunities to score tries in recent weeks, and he hasn't taken them. You know, you're talking about um, not holding that path against ba- pass against Bath, not passing against Claremont, not passing at the weekend against Harlequins. You know, he's still not playing at full potential, which is very exciting for Ulster. You know, he's he's making these brilliant breaks, and if he's finishing them off, suddenly there's not too much more you want to add to his game. So, currently, I think. Cooney still has more to give, which is extremely exciting for Ulster. Yeah, absolutely. All round then on, uh, when was it, Saturday afternoon, Dan McFarland certainly didn't seem overly pleased with the performance after the game anyway. I think he said everything except Ulster got lucky, and I think if he had said that, you wouldn't have argued with him. I mean, you can't deny that it's Davida Cavabati shooting out of the line and taking Adam McBurney out that gets them that that penalty that Cooney slots to win and Ulster are grinding out results this year you can talk about that being the hallmark of champions you know when you win games that you don't deserve to win you're just putting points on the board but at the same time we're sitting here what 10 games into the season and we still haven't seen an 80 minute performance from Ulster and besides that first half an hour against Scarlets who are depleted and very lacklustre and against the Kings, who are basement dwellers in the Pro 14, Ulster haven't looked like a brilliant attacking team. And at the moment, it's their defence that's winning them games. I, I was saying before the game on Saturday, and I ended up being proved right during the game, You, know, this is a team that are effective, but they're not overly entertaining at the moment. That can change. I, I think there's a lot of attacking potential on this team if they could just be patient with the ball and if they could just start to put a few phases together rather than looking for that Hail Mary offload or that X-factor play that you know has a low risk high reward strategy that's not coming off we saw with Stuart McCluskey's try if you just go through the phases just keep grinding away the chances will come and you can take them Ulster seem determined to try and make that great play after phase three phase four when I, I know we've talked before about how teams don't like to go through lots of phases because statistically your chances of a try goes down but at the moment Ulster aren't scoring tries off first phase second phase balls so they've got to go through the phases to try and score I think there's a real possibility that had they lost that game Dan McFarland would have tried to use that as a wake up call mm-hmm. and the fact that they managed to win the game He's still trying to use it as a wake-up call. Essentially, if they had lost that game, and I think Stuart McCluskey said as much after the game, that would have been far more damaging than, say, had they lost to Bath, because if you lose a home game, you're in real trouble. Yeah. And had they done that, then you're essentially looking having to go to Winnick Harlequins, and let's not understate that. 
but also go to Claremont and win. And with the best one in the world, you're not going to do both <laughs> those things. Like, I think because Leinster are so good and they're so efficient, that they're so relentless, that they're not the most interesting story in Irish rugby because people are expecting them to do what they do. Like they went out and whatever it was. How many tries did they get? Seven? Seven. Seven tries against the team that's been the best team in England so far. 15 changes from the week before or 15 changes the week before in the beat Glasgow in Scotland and it's like the song remains the same so people aren't talking about it mm-hmm. and what they are now talking about is Ulster in a way that people haven't talked about Ulster mm-hmm. in a number of years so like I listened to I think four different podcasts last week and you had people like Luke Fitzgerald people like Bernard Jackman um, Andy Good, Jim Hamilton it's not that they were just talking about Ulster which is in some way a change they were talking so positively about Ulster mm-hmm. saying that they're the most impressive um, impressive team that they've seen John Cooney has been talked about as the best player in the Champions Cup this year obviously like, we did a big piece on Cooney as well did a piece on Stockdale did a piece on Alan O'Connor these were just the people who were put up for media you know you could put a positive spin on the story if you like not even a spin just the players who were playing relatively well so that's what you're talking about but you can't control the narrative around a team that's winning games it's impossible to do especially a team like let's be honest I've been in this job about four or five years I think that's the first time I've been accused of overly positive coverage <laughs> you know so if people usually I'm the positive one like, on this podcast fans are, fans are the same and people are comparing it to two years ago which they have every right to do which we have every right to do because the fact that people like this team and are coming mm-hmm. around this team and seeing the fight for every inch, squeeze every drop mentality that they want to see. They have every right to be positive about that. And Dan McFarland has every right to say, I'm not here to lose quarterfinals and lose semifinals in the Pro 14 and have that as yeah. a decent thing. So Dan McFarland wants them to be better. Fans want them to be better too, but they're also allowed to be happy with where they're at. Mm. The two things don't have to be in sync. And Saturday was probably the first time that we saw that sort of friction between public perception throughout the week not just mm-hmm. um, not just in the wake of kicking a last minute penalty to beat a team that you were 11 points you know the bookie said you should beat by 11 mm. and you need a 78 45 second penalty yeah. but I, th- I think there's a lot to be said just about winning games take mm-hmm. away Absolutely. take away how the game has gone take away everything surrounding the game bar the scoreline mm-hmm. Ulster are winning games and that, yeah. that's the big thing and as Johnny says three, four years ago they wouldn't have won that game mm. they wouldn't have won any of those three European games but yet we are sitting here Ulster are top of pool three in the Champions Cup they are second in Conference A of the Pro 14 they are barring a complete collapse they're going to be sitting decently enough going into the new year going into the Six Nations hopefully with a quarter final mm. in Europe to look forward to without preempting anything you know they haven't hit anywhere near their best form yeah. at the moment so if you can peak at the right time coming out of the Six Nations going into potentially a quarter final looking towards the playoffs in the Pro 14 hopefully then all this you know negativity around we, we haven't put in an 80 minute performance yet we haven't hit our attacking stride yet can be used can be seen as like building blocks almost to where they're trying to get to I think the most important thing they've done 
through 10 games this season is they've cultivated a winning culture mm-hmm. within that dressing room yeah. and that's the big thing that I think Ulster were missing certainly under Les Kiss and Mark Anscombe and it's the kind of thing that Dan McFarland has brought mm-hmm. back Absolutely. into the province Ian Frizzell points out that uh, Andrew Trimble says well Andrew Trimble says hard to pinpoint where Ulster need to improve to become genuine contenders in Europe Ian asks do Ulster lack an X factor right now I think he's 100% right I don't want to make a Spurs analogy but I'm going for it <laughs> more football on this podcast can't can't stand him about, <laughs> about two years ago right, you were looking at Spurs' team and thinking where do you improve it because the first 11 was good in a way that you were going to have to sign a very good player to upgrade mm-hmm. on one of the starting players and I think Ulster are in a similar enough position but you're right because you look at it and it's not at the level of the top four or as Dan McFarland would say the top eight mm-hmm. X Factor is a difficult one because there was plenty of X Factor the year that Piatai was here and you know they, they got beat by Exeter and well, got beat by Bordeaux got beaten by Bordeaux twice yeah got so I'm going to say Ulster don't lack an X Factor you, you look at that back three Jacob Stockdale is going through a tough run of form but whenever he finds that form he was in last year and the year before, he's one of the best X Factor players on the planet. Let, I th- let alone. I th- like I thought to be fair that start playing start to the fullback, they did get him on the ball more. They did. Mm. He had, he had twelve. Th- he had twelve carries, yeah. having had thirteen in the previous three games yeah. he played. Like, and I, I so. think that he, you know, he made seventy odd meters. I think, I think he did okay. I think that was a cautiously positive result on that uh, experiment, if you want mm-hmm. to call it an experiment. And obviously, yes, yeah, Stockdale is the. X Factor, Stu McCloskey is the X Factor. Um, Billy Burns kicking game, we talked about it last week. And you know, that's an element of variety, which is what you're really talking about with X Factor. John Cooney's added that ability to break down the blind side that we haven't really seen in previous years, but he's shown it in previous weeks that he really can do it. Like with the best one in the world, Ulster's starting fifteen at the minute is gonna have absolute best one in the world, probably six international starters in it. If you look at Leinster, Saracens, Rassing, they've probably got 14, 15 <laughs> international starters. So it's you're not going to be able to go out and sign seven international starters. That's impossible. So you have to add one greater depth underneath. Mm-hmm. And two, some of those players have to be stars. That's mm-hmm. not a knock on those players. It's just uh, if you're talking about bridging the gap to Saracens and Leinster that's what they have they have superstar 15s mm-hmm. because you bear in mind you know at, at the weekend Eric O'Sullivan it's one of the first times he's really struggled this season at the scrum Kyle Sinclair had his number but also didn't bring Andrew Warwick on at any point because they thought they had to stick with Eric O'Sullivan for the 80 minutes and that that's the kind of thing you know if you're Leinster let's say uh, Tag Furlong struggling at the scrum you just roll Andrew Porter on off the bench and you've lost next to nothing in terms of uh, the skill that you've brought on that's the kind of thing that you need from a, from an Ulster perspective Let's talk a little bit about one of the guys who you mentioned there one of uh, Ulster's undoubted stars Marcel Katia because uh, a little bit of an injury worry there I take it we don't know anymore yet No 
but we'll we will very find shortly. Out more by the time people have listened to this. Exactly. So, so not, we're know. about to uh, <laughs> we're, we're about to have the press conference. Uh, Hectic Skies has been recording this before the press conference takes place. But if there's anything said, we will drop it in a little bit of audio right here. It was a lot like today today. So we just everyone was getting assessed and screened and yeah, sort of more of a review, learning, recover day like today today. So we'll see we'll see how it goes later later in the week. So obviously we're in the middle of this uh, back-to-back section of the European Pool stages. Uh, it uh, also our way to Harlequins on Friday evening. Big Jim asks, is there a change or a selection that Ulster can make for Friday evening's game to up their game? I want to see them put out their most attacking lineup as possible. I felt that Ulster really struggled to break down Harlequin's rush defence because that that's the first time certainly I can remember Ulster this season facing a defence that really shot out and got in their face and that's Paul Gustard all over from working with Saracens you know being up in your face really quick off the line giving opposition no time to work with the ball and forcing them to make quick decisions I think you really want someone like Kieran Treadwell in the pack as a more explosive ball carrier than Alan O'Connor and that's I pretty much said this last week that's nothing against Alan O'Connor that's just you know two different skill sets what two different players offer to a team and then someone like Matt Faddis in the backs now Faddis has gotten quite a bit of slack for you know dropping balls and uh, not quite being as cohesive as some other guys in that back line but there's no doubt that whenever you give him a bit of space and whenever you give him the opportunity he's great at picking a gap and he's great at going through and beating a defender here and there he's one of those ones that he likes to try and make the big play but if you tell him you know don't look for offloads don't go for those you know x-factor plays after phase one or phase two hold on to the ball He's a really good guy to have with ball in hand. So I think from from an Ulster perspective this week, we know the defence is good. You've got to try and get your most offensively minded players out on the pitch there and try and get something going with ball in hand. Ulster obviously need to be better, but still confident that they will be and they will get the win because last week we had sort of cautiously predicted an Ulster double in these games. Yeah, um, I, th- I think it all depends on how much Harlequins are up for this game. Paul Gustard came up afterwards and spoke very confidently about how, well, they've still got a chance to reach the quarterfinals. They're still going to go hell for leather and you know I, I don't doubt they will but at the same time as Johnny mentioned last week, they've got Wasps the week afterwards in mm-hmm. the Premiership which now surely must be their main focus. Yeah. So if Ulster can get off to a good start, get a try on the board early, you know, the I think they'll definitely have some kind of contingency plan in there where they can haul a few guys off early and uh, conserve a bit of energy. I also think Ulster didn't see a few things that Quinns did last week coming. I certainly think they wouldn't have expected Cavabati and Kunitani to both start. I think that was that threw them for a bit of a loop and then you had Lodi coming on off the bench which completely switched things around as the game went on in terms of the approach that Harlequins took for me it, it all depends if Ulster can break down that Harlequins defence I mean mm. Gustard's got them drilled so well but if Ulster can 
first of all take them on physically we saw how well the mall went at the weekend if they try and take them on physically they can get that edge and then it's all about just working that patience mm-hmm. in midfield yeah it's all about harlequin's approach to be honest like mm-hmm. you know adam said about paul got started coming up and saying no we're not out of it at the end of the day there's only five teams or longer odds now for um the heineken cup after the weekend's results than Harlequins and one of them's Bath and one of them is yeah the other team Ulster's good like they are out of it like um, but what approach they take with that massive game against Wasps on the 21st or the 20th of December is going to influence that because they're not unlike Ulster in that they have a key group of really really good players yeah and it's how many of them are going to play. On the subject of squads and adding a little bit more strength and depth to Ulsters, Tom Armstrong has thrown up a few, uh, well, a question about the academy players. Any of the, the forwards in the academy going to get a chance? He mentions McCann, Dunleavy and Reid. Any of them going to be brought into that squad? I would throw Alison into that mix as well. He's somebody that I really like. I like all those players that he's named. I really like all those players that he's named. But, you know, we talked to Tom McFarland don't quote me on it we talked to somebody <laughs> last year and asked about you know the next wave of um, James Hume of something, not c- just somebody it, was, it, was somebody <laughs> it wasn't just there. a man in the stands <laughs> yeah. and we're like you know who's the next wave and he was sort of like well we used all of them this year you know, we used yeah. so many yeah. of them this year that there wasn't per se a batch just ready to come in this year in the same way mm. that we saw so many academy players make their debuts last year but I would absolutely have high hopes for those guys if not in these Christmas Interpros then next year's mm-hmm. Christmas Interpros you know talk about it every other week like Leinster's match day 23 is normally 21 well now tw- yeah, 21 Irish qualified players with Jameson Gibson Park now qualified yeah. James Lowe will qualify soon enough so if you look at the 23 that's the best team in Europe Barscard Fardy 22 of those guys are Irish qualified Mm -hmm. and from within their own systems which brings us on nicely into the next question of what separates the Leinster Academy and those structures from what we have up here well a huge part of it is obviously starts with the population like you can say that's a cop out but at the end of the day if you take in 31 inter-county football teams and 30 provinces there's 34 teams in the country trying to wonder why the team based in Dublin is so much better than them in their given sport but then you have to look, I suppose, at the work that Leinster and the Leinster schools have done. You know, you've got eight schools that are just producing huge amount of players. If you look at the massive rugby schools in, let's say, Belfast, in comparison to Dublin, mm-hmm. bar that ins team of Dan Sobers, and then taking it back probably to the Methody team, where there was four or five players, you know, the big schools haven't produced players in the same frequency. And there's not obviously the same numbers of them either. The, mm. Leinster, the Leinster schools are almost a professional setup. You know, these guys are set up that they've got their nutrition sorted out, their training mm. schedules sorted out. They've got gym sessions three times a week. You know, these guys are treated as if they are professional players. So every time they make a step up to the next level, they're not really, you know, jumping up in terms of intensity or what they're trying to do. It's just you know you're going up in terms of a talent level where you've gone from your school level where you've got guys on the edge who are talented but they're never going to make it at a professional level to then you go up to provincial level into an academy where everybody's fighting it out for effectively a contract 
and then you go up to the professional level where you're fighting for spots in the first teams. Ulster at the end of the day are picking from a smaller player pool and still contesting with the fact that talented, athletically minded teenagers are still playing football and still playing Gaelic football more mm-hmm. than they're playing bear, bear in mind that Aaron Sexton could have very easily gone to athletics rather than chosen a path in mm. rugby. Like, And he's, he's not even a guy who's guaranteed to make it at the top level of rugby yet. People always clamour for, you know, we want a completely Ulster-born, Ulster starting 15, but then complain that Ulster aren't co- aren't competing at the top level. Mm-hmm. It's because you don't have the numbers. You have to go to other provinces to find it, those guys. Well, that'll have to do us for this week. People are starting to arrive for the, the press conference. So, from John Brad. Cheers. Adam Tandy. Cheers, guys. And myself, Gareth Thanks for listening.